Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is David Traher. He is a chartered professional accountant, speaker, and author of five books on personal financial issues. His latest book is called Enough Bull, How to Retire Well Without the Stock Market, Mutual Funds, or Even an Investment Advisor. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks, Jordan. So let's just start. I gave a little bit, but also give a little bit further about your background before you wrote this book. Okay. Well, I'm, uh, a, as you said, a, a CPA in Canada. Uh, I'm not an investment advisor. I basically started writing books out of personal interest. I try and analyze the subject of personal finance as I would a business uh, without an incentive to sell anybody on anything because I'm not licensed to sell financial products. It makes absolutely no difference to me what people end up believing after they uh, read my book. So it's really from an independence angle, I think, uh, uh, much like your angle. Exactly. Now, you talk. this is actually the second edition of Enough Bull you just came out with recently. The first yes. edition was like 2009 or something after the financial crisis of 2008. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. I mean, I wrote the original edition starting in the fall of 2008, and it came out in early 2009. And anybody who was an investor in the stock market knows that's when the stock markets were crashing. Uh, and in Canada and as well as the U.S., the markets generally lost almost 50% of their value between the peak in June of 2008 and uh, the pit in March of 2009. So for a book to come out and advocate, forget the stock market, stick with safe fixed income products, the timing was very good for the release of the book. People were uh, more inclined to accept that message when they experienced significant losses in the stock market themselves. Now, you talk in the beginning of the book about what happened in the fall of 2008. Maybe just from your perspective, explain what caused such a deep fall. And you had the fall of Lehman Brothers and AIG and General mm-hmm. Motors and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and all these major institutions dropping like flies. What mm-hmm. caused such a dramatic uh, contraction of the economy and the markets at that time? That we could, uh, well, now well, now well, that we have a little bit more spe- perspective on it. Right. Well, I think uh, everything that you mentioned really was the cause of it. And my belief is that, unfortunately, the stock market is, very, is not a very logical place to be. Things happen more uh, because of what people read in the newspaper or, or some event overseas happens, and they panic. And that, that's what, that was the feeling during that period of time, was just panic. If, a, if an institution that's you know, more than a century old, like Lehman Brothers, can go bankrupt that quickly, what else can happen? And people just started, uh, you know, running, uh, running away from the stock market. And when people are selling, it just bring, drags the stock market down. And that's one of the problems I have as a logical accountant is uh, that, that the stock market doesn't seem to behave that, uh, that uh, uh, logically. So, uh, you know, if there was a direct correlation between the financial results, the audited financial statements of a company and its stock price, I'd be much more inclined to, uh, to trust the stock market than invest my hard-earned savings in it. But it doesn't seem to react uh, very well. So during a period like that, uh, even really good companies like Apple that had fantastic financial results even throughout that period of time uh, lost about half of its share value, even though that makes no logical sense. So I really think it's this 
this uh, emotionally driven response to the stock market that gets people into trouble. You know, it's the old axiom of fear and greed. Uh, When the stock market's doing well, everybody gets into it. That tends to be high or near the peak. And then when it drops, they they panic and and, uh, the fear sets in. And it's just a vicious downward uh, spiral from there. So basically what you concluded in the book and and so on is uh, you should pretty pretty much stay away from the stock market after the crash of 2008-2009. Yet we've had an enormous bull market since the March 2009 low, and had you been in cash or right, the time, time, you would have missed a huge, huge upside here. So well, what is your thing. response to people saying, you know, you shouldn't stay out of the market, you, you should have been buying more when things were cheap? Uh, and I, I agree with that point. If you're in the market, you have to stay in the market, right? And I think, uh, you know, while the returns since March of 2009 have been fantastic, uh, that's only if you started investing in March of 2009. Uh, for people who were fully invested in the stock market equities at the peak in 2008, uh, well, they lost 50% and now have, you know, they've recovered that. But it's taken six or seven years or more to get back uh, to where they were, which brings us to the, the next point, which is the fact that investing is all about the future. You know, we need to know what happened in the past and why it happened, but we really need to project about what's going to happen in the future. So we're sitting with uh, the U.S. market, the Canadian market, at literally at all-time highs right now, and it just doesn't seem to me that that the logic behind that is is fully justified. In other words, uh, the economy is, is, yes, it's getting better, but it's not uh, not that good. And, you know, when you get into investing, especially on a worldwide basis, because we all know we shouldn't just invest in our own country, uh, something like what's happening in Greece right now. Well, if, if there is a major problem there, po- possibly a, an exit from the Eurozone, again, the, the worry is this panic's going to set in, and whether it's right or wrong, people are going to react against uh, investing in general because they, they see nothing as safe, even governments now. So what do you think is the reason that the stock markets around the world have risen so sharply over the last uh, six years or so? Interesting. I I personally think part of it is to do with interest rates. Interest rates in the U.S. and Canada are are almost at at all-time lows. So the the problem with low interest rates is it absolutely uh, punishes savers and favors borrowers. So the low interest rates people who are spending more than they make, they're inclined to get into more debt. But the problem is the savers of the world uh, make such lousy returns on things like uh, certificates of deposit, they're called guaranteed investment certificates in Canada, that they're almost forced into the stock market. So I believe there's a lot of money out there, even with conservative investors, that would be in safe products, but are in the stock market, and that's helping to drive the stock market up. Uh, because the alternative is so unattractive because of the low rates. So are you expecting any change? Are you expecting uh, rates on short-term safe products to go up uh, significantly in the next few years? Uh, I, I can't see that. I mean, it's very difficult to predict the future, but interest rates generally seem to be tied to the economy. The central banks uh, set their, I think the Federal Reserve, the federal funds rate is, they have a target of between 0 and 0.25%. It's basically as low as it can go. And what the central banks do with their key interest rate sends a signal to the commercial banks as to what to do with their prime rate. So 
because the the federal funds rate is is uh, you know as low as it can go, prime rates almost as low as it can go. Um, they need that to to stimulate the economy because when interest rates are low, people borrow, they spend, and the consumer is a major driver of the economy. So the problem is that raising interest rates will slow down that spending, slow down the economy, and that's the last thing that the politicians want to do. Um, so, right, so with your view then, that short-term rates are going to stay low for quite a while, sounds like that's your view, yes. then why would you want to be, have your, most of your money in short-term guaranteed safe CDs yeah. and GICs where the reason the market's been going up, the stock market's been going up, is low interest rates, which you say is going to continue? Right. Well, I think the, the key is the benefit is the capital preservation is that, you know, when you're in uh, a low-interest savings product, at least you've got a floor. You're going to get your money back. Uh, in a rocky stock market, we've seen you can lose a significant uh, portion of what you've got. And when it comes to personal finance, my, my opinion is you can't afford to lose money. I mean, we're not high-risk. Uh, most people are not high-risk uh, multimillionaires who can afford to lose that money. And we definitely aren't corporations or governments that go on forever. Uh, we, we have a, a timeline, which is, for most of us, saving for retirement, whatever, another decade or two to go. Uh, there, we don't have a lot of time to make up for a major uh, crash in the stock market. Um, I, I think, basically, with respect to personal finance, here's what I think is going on with a lot of people. They spend more than they make have very little savings as a result. And to make this all add up and continue their lifestyle, they need a fantastic rate of return. So forget fixed income. That forces them to be real risk takers. And uh, as I say, it, that's a major, major risk. I mean, it could work out. It may work out. Uh, but if it doesn't, then you know there's not enough time to make up for that before they retire. So you know, my focus is, look, Focus on what's really important here, which is the fact that you're spending more than you make. <laughs> you know, and I try and encourage people to track their spending, track their finances, to you know, fix, try and fix the real core part of the problem of you not being able to save enough for retirement, and that's uh, having enough money to save because you're spending less than you make. Don't um, you know? Don't justify your uh, your your spending, your overspending, uh, by assuming that the stock market's going to bail you out. A lot of people open themselves up to, to uh, scam artists and people who aren't 100% above board because they're looking for that promise of a guaranteed 8 to 10% per year in some investment product. Yes. Uh, and that's just not going to happen. So we're going to go into the details uh, soon here. You have what you call your six-point uh, plan uh, for financial freedom, right. uh, which is what you call the antidote to that. Right. So we're going to get to that after the break as to what they are. But why do people need an antidote uh, for uh, traditional forms of investing? Well, I think, uh, you know, my opinion is there aren't rules. So my antidote is just a series of points that if people aren't currently doing them, uh, doing them could improve their personal financial situation. And I think a lot of people, you know, they don't, they don't want to spend much time thinking about their finances. And therefore, if you shorten it down to a series of points, they're more likely to think about it and actually act on them. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. Uh, my guest this hour is David Traher. Uh, he is a, uh, a chartered professional accountant.
patent, a speaker, author of several books. His latest book is called Enough Bull, How to Retire Well Without the Stock Market, Mutual Funds, or Even an Investment Advisor. And his website is traher.com, which is spelled T-R-A-H-A-I-R.com. We'll be back after this. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is David Traher. Uh, He is the author of a new book called Enough Bull, How to Retire Well Without the Stock Market, Mutual Funds, or Even an Investment Advisor. Welcome back to the show, David. Thanks, Jordan. So we talked about the six antidotes, the six-point plan for financial freedom. Let's start with the first one, which is what you call avoiding personal financial disasters. Right. And you begin with Ponzi schemes. So maybe just briefly talk about what Ponzi schemes are uh, and how you can uh, spot a Ponzi scheme. Because in in a very low interest rate environment, it's very tempting for people to be pulled in by something that's seemingly offering high returns with little risk. Exactly. Well, a Ponzi scheme uh, is basically a situation where somebody promises you a guaranteed high rate of return. So as soon as somebody says, okay, if you give your money to me, I'll invest you in this product or whatever it is, and I'm going to guarantee you a high rate of return, um, that is the first indication that it's probably a Ponzi scheme because there is no such thing as a guaranteed high rate of return. 
there is a potential high rate of return, but the potential high rate of return comes with a risk, the risk that it will be not that it won't be high or that it might even be negative. Uh, and I think uh, in my book I, I cite this one study where they uh, analyzed the typical person who becomes a victim of a Ponzi scheme, and uh, a core part of that group are people in their 50s that are short on money for retirement looking for sort of that silver bullet to bail them out. So it opens them up uh, to be a potential victim because, as you said, it's so tempting to want to try and find something that's going to make you this incredible rate of return. Uh, and I get into the details of the uh, Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme. I mean, that was a multi-billion dollar situation where very intelligent, wealthy people and individuals and, and charitable uh, trusts got into this, assuming that he could do what he was promising that he could do. And obviously, uh, the Ponzi schemer just spends all the money. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously... Uh, Why do you think they... that people did not catch on to Madoff early? I mean, he had all these investment advisors and the SEC was looking at things. There were lots of red flags. Why do you think he got away, for it, got away with it for as long as he did? A very good question. I mean, the, the SEC did a study, actually, to find out why they didn't find this. The study's like 477 pages long. Um, and I think uh, part of it was that the, the individuals they were sending in to uh, look over his operations, uh, the, the, the examinations were poorly planned, and they weren't doing a full forensic audit type of, uh, of, of uh, analysis of his organization. But he, he was a brilliant uh, speaker, he, he was. He appeared very grandfatherly. People just trusted him. But the, the reason that became so big was there was approximately 77 feeder uh, hedge funds, feeder funds all over the world, bringing in clients. The clients would bring in their money to these uh, overseas companies. They'd send the money to Madoff's firm and never see it again. So a lot of the uh, lawsuits now are between the end investors who lost money and these feeder firms for uh, lack of due diligence. We sent yes. you a million dollars. You sent the check to New York, and <laughs> did you ever go there and find out that it was actually being deposited? And they, they, they didn't. Yeah. So do you think there are other similar big Ponzi schemes out there now that are operating that have not been uh, found out yet? Oh, I would bet on it, uh, for sure. I mean, it, it's such a lucrative way or, or an easy way for a con artist to make money, playing upon people's greed and, and uh, need to uh, believe that it's true. Uh, and, and these people, I mean, these people are professional actors. You know, the problem is that there are professional actors out there, and some of them aren't in the entertainment industry. They are trying to take your money. They're, these are people who are very good at it. So people get sucked in, and uh, I think what allows these Ponzi schemes to expand even further is embarrassment. Even when people mm -hmm. find out they've become a victim, they're not inclined to tell all their friends and warn all their friends, or even in many cases go to the authorities because they're embarrassed that they got ripped off. So but there just, was a case in, in Canada called Eron. Maybe just briefly describe how they did it. Uh, that was uh, in B.C., uh, British Columbia, the, the province on the western coast. And it would revolved around a mortgage broker. And what their angle was, they said, look, uh, if you give us our money, we're going to lend it out to commercial builders who, who, aren't, uh, who won't qualify for a regular bank loan. Therefore, we can charge them high interest rates. And that's why we will promise you high interest rates. And as typical with a Ponzi scheme, they just collected all the money, spent all the money. Um, 
So the, the Ponzi schemers have a problem as soon as some of their investors want their money back. Because they so again, why didn't the regulars, why didn't the BC Securities Commission p- pick up on that early? Yeah, good, good question. It was sort of off the radar in some, it wasn't, uh, they weren't issuing shares for public consumption through a prospectus because it was this off-books off kind of mortgage broker situation. Uh, uh, they, weren't originally, uh, they weren't originally found out or prevented from doing what they were, what they were supposed to do. But actually, uh, I, I, I mentioned in the, uh, in the chapter on that is that if people had bothered to check the background of the two people who, who perpetuated and, and formed that scheme, uh, they had been in trouble with securities regulators for years. Uh, so they were, were, were telltale signs, yeah. So okay, so we've got to yeah. t- so avoid Ponzi schemes is the idea. <laughs> the next well, and potential disaster has... you have is what you call credit card disease. So maybe describe that and how people can avoid getting into credit card disease. Uh, well, with the ease of availability of credit, it's very easy. And people, uh, especially when they run into some difficulty, they lose their job, they've got a health concern, their income gets cut off, they continue their spending, and with the still quite easy availability of credit it's quite easy to run up more than you can uh, than you can uh, uh, pay off carry a, a revolving credit card balance and therefore have the very high interest rate building up against you uh, the problem is it's very difficult to reverse that process for people who are spenders they're used to spending more than they make um, it's very difficult to uh, change their habits, spend less than they make, and therefore have enough money to pay off the debt. So it's a, a sort of a downhill snowball that just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Um, you know, it's interesting. When you compare the United States and Canada, Canadians are generally known as a little bit more conservative, but Canadians have a big problem with uh, not credit card debt, but home equity lines of credit is a huge problem in Canada. The housing market is still really going strong here. So people... They spend more than they make, run up credit card debt, don't like paying 20% on that. They refinance with a home equity line of credit and then just keep increasing that home equity line of credit. So there are uh, really significant balances on many people's home equity lines of credit in Canada. So you think that happened in the U.S. in the mid-2000s, that people were using their homes as ATMs and taking it out with HELOCs. So are you saying that there's a potential housing bubble in Canada, that people are taking out too much equity in their HELOCs, and they may have uh, some foreclosures and so on there? I think it's a big risk, yeah. Even the central bank is worried about that. But, you know, the bank is a very difficult uh, situation. They want to keep interest rates low to stimulate the economy, but that fuels these borrowers. Uh, so they're, they're trying to convince people, look, don't borrow too much, but we're going to keep interest rates at a dirt-cheap rate. So it's a very difficult message that they're trying to get out there. Uh, you know, and, and I deal with this. I've, I wrote another book called Crushing Debt, Why Canadians Should Drop Everything and Pay Off Debt, and has looked into the U.S. housing market crash. And the worry is sort of Canadians are in the situation where Americans were at the peak in 2006 or 2007. So that's the worry is, well, what, ha- what happens if something like the U.S. housing market crash happens up here? People will be in very deep trouble. They would be underwater in their houses having borrowed a lot, out most of the equity, is what you're saying. That's right, yeah. The latest statistics I heard at the, at the, the peak of the housing market crash in the States, I think it was about 28% of single-family-occupied homes with a mortgage were underwater. So the house was worth less than the mortgage. 
things have improved. I think the latest figure I saw was only about 16% of houses are still underwater. So the U.S. housing market's coming back, but still a lot of these people haven't recovered to the point where they could even pay off the mortgage. Yeah. Now, your second antidote is quite a revolutionary idea, saying you don't need the stock market or mutual funds at all. Right. Now, again, we, we know we had a big downturn in 2008, 2009. We had a big rise since then. Why right. do people not need stock, uh, the, investing in stocks or mutual funds at all? Uh, well, because of this idea of capital preservation. Personally, I think uh, when it comes to personal finances, the, the key thing is to not lose money. Uh, and a lot of people have experienced that, but a lot of people haven't yet. Uh, and when they do, it puts them back tens of thousands, thousands or tens of thousands of dollars into, you know, uh, into the hole. It takes them a lot of time to to get out of that hole, and there's just not that much time to recover from a huge negative, uh, a negative uh, adjustment to the investment portfolio. Um, the other issue is. You know, the current environment, people think, okay, well, I can only earn whatever, one and a half or two percent on a certificate of deposit, and therefore I'm going to go into the stock market and maybe make make seven or eight percent. But a lot of people look at the ideal index, which has done incredibly well in the States and Canada as well, uh, but they don't really look at what, how well their investment portfolio, their personal uh, equity investments, their personal stocks and equity mutual funds have done. And the sad reality is that due to poor timing and emotions getting involved and possibly high investment management fees, they're not doing anywhere near as well as they thought they were. So that really reduces the margin between safe investing, capital preservation, only making 2%, and it's not compared to 8 to 10%, it's compared to like maybe 5 or 6% after fees. So, you know, uh, again, the people, I, I believe the people who make money in the stock market are the stock brokers, the investment advisors uh, that get a commission or a trailer fee of 1%, no matter what happens in the market. That's how you get wealthy in the stock market, is to take a cut of the action, uh, not to be involved in the action uh, uh, by itself, uh, so there was a, a book years ago saying, saying, where are the customers' yachts? It's all the brokers that have the yachts. <laughs> That's right. um, now, you have a whole section here on mutual fund risks. Uh, we don't have time to get into all of them, but what are right. some of the risks that people are taking when they go into mutual funds that they're probably not aware of? Um, well, it depends on the type of mutual fund. I think with uh, equity mutual funds, obviously the risk is that the, uh, the market's going uh, to decline. Um, but uh, depending on the type of equity uh, mutual fund, a lot, some of them have borrowed money, so you've got, uh, you've got interest rate risk, maybe possibly foreign currency risk, uh, and that's a good one for Canadians because when, when Canadians invest in uh, U.S. stocks, they convert it to Canadian dollars, and then whatever the exchange rate does has a big impact on their investments. So conversely, if Americans had any money invested in Canadian stocks because the U.S. dollar has done so well, their Canadian stock portfolio would not have done anywhere near as well because of the uh, exchange adjustment. Very good. Uh, we're we're going to take a break. I'm going to get back to the mutual fund risk after the break. Uh, my guest this hour is David Trehare. He's a chartered professional accountant and speaker and uh, author of several books. His latest book is called Enough Bull, How to Retire Well Without the Stock Market, Mutual Funds, or Even an Investment Advisor. His website is trehare.com. We'll be back after this.
stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in government, the legal arena, and the business world impacts your business every day. And we're going to take you on a behind-the-scenes tour of it all. Each week, we'll bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers and leaders. Squire Patton Boggs will be your guide as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join us for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Channel each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is David Traher. He's a chartered professional accountant, speaker, and author of five books. His latest book is called... Enough Bull, How to Retire Well Without the Stock Market, Mutual Funds, or Even an Investment Advisor. Welcome back to the show, David. Thanks, Jordan. So we were talking about the different mutual fund risks. Uh, You were saying foreign currency risk. What are some of the other risks that people are taking with mutual funds they may not be aware of? Uh, Well, there's a whole bunch of them. For instance, credit risk, Uh, the risk that a company issues a bond or other fixed income security and won't be able to pay back the principal. Uh, I mean, Lehman Brothers bonds were were rated AAA until the next day when they went bankrupt. So you've got to worry about that. Uh, derivatives risks. Some funds funds use derivatives, essentially contracts that gamble on the future price of assets. There's emerging market risks. If your mutual fund is uh, inver- uh, investing in these smaller markets with uh, with economies that aren't really regulated by securities regulators as strongly as they are in North America. Um, Foreign equity uh, risk, possible political problems. Again, if you invested in a mutual fund that uh, held Greek bonds, you might have a problem coming up by the end of the month, depending on what happens there. Um, There's large investor risks. You're in a mutual fund, but also a large investment company is in that fund and decides to cash out. So, you know, that might bring down the value of your your investment. There's liquidity risk. uh, for instance, some mutual funds are small, more difficult to uh, to sell. Uh, there's regulatory they're gonna limit, risk. They're going to limit your ability to sell a fund in, in a crunch. 
Oh, well, it, it could be. Uh, that could be, right? Um, securities with a limited trading market have liquidity risk. So if the mutual fund has some investments that it owns uh, in a smaller company, it might be difficult to find a seller for that investment or a buyer for that, seller, uh, that investment. Th- that even happened with money market funds in the crisis, right? There was a, some of the, the uh, money market funds broke the buck because uh, they had a lot of layman paper. And they lost it, and you know they froze the the money market funds, and the government came in and kind of bailed them out for the short term. But that that happened in what people thought was the safest of all investments, actually. Exactly. So there's all these risks that aren't visible from the surface that don't uh, you know you don't know about until something goes wrong, right? That's the problem. Mm-hmm. And what else? You have some more risk. What are some other risks? We just finished with liquidity. What are some other ones? Um, regulatory risk. Industries like healthcare, telecommunications that are heavily regulated uh, may receive government funding. All of a sudden, the government changes the policy and uh, deregulates or, or uh, otherwise opens up the market. So your company that used to be doing well no longer has a, a lock on the market, and that's going to possibly affect your uh, affect your investment value there. Um, Securities lending risks. Uh, some funds can lend a portion of their portfolio securities to a qualified borrower or borrowers who have posted collateral for a fee. Uh, so again, if the borrower has a problem, uh, you know the, the the mutual fund itself is going to run into uh, into uh, problems. Uh, series risks. Many mutual funds have different series depending on. Uh, the situation with different fees and expenses that are tracked separately. So if one series can't pay its portion of the expenses based on uh, its proportionate share of the fund assets, another series might have to kick in to help it out. Uh, smaller company risk. Stock price of smaller companies often more volatile than uh, than larger companies. Uh, so, you know, in in the book, I list 18 of them, and it's actually from a perspective of a mutual fund in Canada, they're required to have a full section on what on the risks that people are getting involved in when they invest in a certain type of uh, mutual fund. And again, uh, for many people, they don't really understand that until something goes wrong, and then, oh, I didn't know there was that risk. Yes. Obviously, people need to be aware of all the risks before they uh, put in their hard-earned money. So that's the risk side. And then... Uh, you talk about fees. Uh, mm-hmm. What are some fees that mutual funds charge that people may not be aware of that are going to be taken away from their returns? Uh, well, the, they're visible fees and what I call invisible fees. The load charge is like a front-end load or a deferred sales charge. is a commission that you pay either when you invest in the mutual fund or with a deferred sales charge when you sell. Uh, deferred sales charges uh, usually exist, depends on the mutual fund, but for up to six years. So, for instance... Uh, you sell it in the first year, it might be a 6% commission based on usually the market value or the original cost that you have to physically pay before they send you the rest of the money. Uh, but the bigger cost or, or uh, the bigger problem that people aren't really aware of, many people aren't, is the management expenses of the mutual fund that include trailer fees being paid to your investment firm who will distribute some of it to your advisor. So uh, here in Canada, advisors only have to tell people about the visible front-end deferred sales charge. They don't really have to discuss the trailing fees that they receive. And as I said earlier, uh, that can be a very lucrative uh, way to earn money from the sellers, but drains the return of the investors. Uh, the key to remember is that these fees are coming out of the return on your, uh, on your mutual fund. So you're effectively paying these fees 
but you don't see it because it's buried in the financial statements of the mutual fund. It's affected what kind of, How significant could there be, particularly those back-end trail fees? What yeah. kind of a bite could that take out of somebody's returns over the long run? Uh, well, it, it can be huge, right? I mean, even a percent or two uh, out, of, uh, out of the returns compounded is, is hugely significant. So uh, if you're going to invest in these mutual funds, ideally you, you stay in them for a long period so that there is no deferred sales charge. It doesn't eat into your return. Uh, but that's a good point. I mean, even a percent compounded on an annual basis over a long period of time adds up to a ton of money. But again, it's it's coming out of your return. It's it's making good money for for the investment uh, advisors. Uh, they're guaranteed that money, even if your investments go down in value. They yeah. get the, they get a percentage, even though it's a percentage of a smaller amount. You, you have people saying that at a certain point they reach what you call the puke point. <laughs> Describe <laughs> yeah. what that is and what should you do if you have reached the puke point and you don't can't stand all these fees and risks anymore. Well, the, the puke point is is that day and time that investor reaches the point where he or she says, "That's it. I've had enough of these losses. I've had enough of these fees. Sell everything." And I recommend you don't do that. That's probably the worst thing you could do if you're invested in the market, specifically in mutual funds. Because uh, because panicking like that often triggers a lot of these fees, so these deferred sales charges. Uh, often the timing is poor because you've just opened up your monthly statement and, and you've seen a loss. So, again, it's it's the fear factor kicking in. You sell at an inopportune time, which is when stocks are depressed. Uh, if you're in the market, you really have to have a strong stomach and, and not do that. That's the worst thing you can do. Um, so, I mean, I talk about in the book how I got totally out of mutual funds and out of the stock market and just into safe investments like uh, like guaranteed investment certificates or certificates of deposits. Uh, but that took years to do. You know, it, it took time to uh, look at the different investments and decide what's the timing, when can we get out, and how can we minimize these costs. So if you'd done it all at once, you would have been hit with enormous back-end fees, basically, is what you're exactly. saying. Exactly. That's the worst thing you could do. Now, your third point is uh, buying a home and paying off your mortgage. Right. Now, that sounds good. What happens if you don't have a rising real estate market? At the moment, it's pretty good, but we saw that real estate can go down pretty sharply in 2008, 2009 as well. Why is that the best strategy to put most of your money into buying a home and paying off your mortgage as quickly as possible? For sure. Well, I, I preface that recommendation with for those who can afford it. Uh, for those who can afford to buy a house, Buying a house and paying off the mortgage before retirement is a great strategy. Uh, for people who can't afford it, uh, you know, they should not be doing that. It could be the worst thing that they could do. But in Canada and, and the U.S. until recently, I guess, the, the history of long-term appreciation of real estate has, has a pretty solid record, very good record of, of annual increases. But you're right, it, it can go wrong. Um, I think the key is, and it's interesting, the U.S. and Canada are quite different. In, in uh, the U.S., I believe you're allowed to deduct mortgage interest off your taxes, Correct. right? That's right. In That's Canada, right. we aren't. We, our, our personal mortgage for our principal residence where we live, we are not allowed to deduct the interest on the mortgage. So there's less incentive for us to take out a huge monster mortgage because uh, the loan costs are after tax. We have to make that out of our after-tax dollars. But the other part of my recommendation is uh, buy a home and pay off the mortgage. This is not buy a home and, and keep it and have a huge mortgage going, going into retirement because, personally, I think that's a terrible idea. 
That's extremely risky because of the, the possibility interest rates might go up, but the housing market may crash. So what do you do when you're retired and your house is underwater and you're on a fixed income? Well, So a lot of people have done that, and particularly a lot of people lately have been refinancing their mortgages in their 50s and even 60s to get a lower interest rate, but then they've re-extended the clock out another 30 years, and they're going to pay it off when they're 90-something. So that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, no. you know, paying it off by the time you get retired makes sense. But a lot of people are tempted by the low rates and say, I, w- I want a lower payment, so I don't care if I sp- pay for the next 30 years. Yeah, well, personally, I think the low rates uh, are an opportunity to pay down debt, not an excuse to get into more debt. Because now when you, you're making your uh, mortgage payments, a much bigger portion of your monthly payment is going towards paying down that mortgage. It's a ideal opportunity to actually even speed up paying down the mortgage, and uh, that that point of view is probably not going to be too uh, too uh, recepted in the United States, I wouldn't think, because uh, uh, basically uh, debt is the uh, uh, main way that people use to build equity. It seems. Yeah. Now, your fourth uh, antidote is to reduce expenses, which you said does not have to be painful. Right. Uh, we've got about two minutes before the break. Just maybe give us one idea of a way that people can reduce their expenses in a major way. Okay. Well, the first thing I tell people is, look, uh, pay a professional to do your taxes. And I, and I say in the book, I'm not interested in doing people's personal taxes. Pay somebody, to a professional, to do your taxes right and make sure you're taking advantage of all the legitimate deductions so that you're not overpaying on your taxes. So reduce your taxes as much as possible legally. And number two is reduce the interest that you pay uh, during your life. For a lot of people, they pay a ton of interest. Try and reduce the interest that you pay, and that might be by paying off debt, shopping around for a lower interest rate, maybe a balance transfer on a high-rate a high uh, credit card to a lower rate, uh, or find out what your credit score is. Make sure you've got a really good credit score. All these things to bring down the interest that you pay. And you also talk about pension income splitting. Describe what that is briefly. Uh, well, in Canada, when you uh, have a pension from your company, um, or you, uh, we have uh, a retirement savings product called an RSP, Registered Retirement Savings Plan, when you start drawing that money out, you're allowed to allocate some of it to your lower-income spouse to reduce your uh, to reduce your taxes. I'm not too sure what the rule is in in the U.S., but uh, that's something that you can take advantage of in Canada. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is David Traher. Uh, he is the author of a book called Enough Bull: How to Retire Well Without the stock market, mutual funds, or even an investment advisor. His website is traher, T-R-A-H-A-I-R.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. 
We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. What if every day was a good day for business? Because every decision you made was the best choice. What if you could receive regular input from credible sources and could acquire all the precise information you need, exactly when you need it, so you can make the right decision every single time? Because There's More challenges you to make better decisions. Join Laura Ellis every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific, and 2 p.m. GMT on the Voice America Business Channel and learn how to think differently for better decisions, better business. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is David Traher. He is the author of a book called Enough Bull, How to Retire Well Without the Stock Market, Mutual Funds, or Even an Investment Advisor. His website, traher.com. Welcome back to the show, David. Thanks, Jordan. So let's get to that last thing, which is you may not need an investment advisor. When does it make sense to have an investment advisor, and when does it not make sense to have an investment advisor? Well, I I think uh, it always makes sense if you can find a good investment advisor. And um, I define a good investment advisor as somebody who's uh, qualified. They've got, uh, you know, designation in in the subject of personal finance. Um, And they listen to your questions. They take your information into consideration. uh, They return your phone calls. Uh, they look at what I call the big picture with respect to your personal finances. They don't just zero in on how much you have to invest. Uh, so if you can find somebody like that, qualified, uh, listens to you, makes good recommendations, uh, charges a reasonable fee, that's the way to go. Unfortunately, those types of advisors are, are difficult to find. Uh, a lot of people have investment advisors that simply aren't like that. They aren't doing the job. Uh, so I strongly encourage them to spend some time trying to find somebody who, who will do the job for them, starting possibly with word of mouth, somebody they know, uh, but you still got to do your due diligence on these people, even if it's recommended by somebody else, and try and find somebody who, who uh, can do a good job for you for a reasonable fee. Uh, so how can you do that due diligence? What, what uh, websites or how would you do due diligence on somebody who looks uh, from the outside to yeah. be a good one? Well, I think uh, in the United States it would be the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC website, I presume, would allow you to punch in somebody's name and make sure that they're uh, registered and that they uh, uh, don't have any charges against them, for example. That's a big problem in Canada because we don't have a natural national securities regulator like the SEC, so somebody might have done something untoward in one province and moved to another one. So they've formed an entity called Canadian Securities Administrators, 
and you can go onto this one website, punch somebody's name in, and make sure that they're registered uh, and haven't not had telling any them charges. if they're not a, a criminal and they're doing criminal. But if if somebody's just a bad investment advisor, but not a criminal one, how you, can you avoid, or even if you have one, get rid of a person like that? Well, that's a tough one. The first thing I would say is, look, a good investment advisor will uh, will contact you and deal with you several times a year, probably. Uh, your statements will tell you your personal rate of return, how well has your portfolio done year-to-date uh, and over the past several years, and the total fees that the investment firm charges. Uh, the, the good firms are not afraid to give that information out. If you ask your investment advisor, look, what's my personal rate of return been on my portfolio, and they don't tell you, uh, you ask what, your, what fees you have paid and they don't tell you, well, there, you've got your answer. You should move to somebody who is going to give you those vital statistics. Yes. Again, hard to um, find, right? So there are different ways of paying financial advisors. There are asset management fees. There are hourly right. fees. There are retainers. What do you think is the best way to pay a financial advisor so that uh, his interests are aligned with yours? But personally, I think the best way to pay them is, is visible upfront fees, possibly on an hourly basis, because the existing situation where with mutual funds, the, the, the payment to them are mixed in with the product, uh, the, these high uh, trailer fees and such, there's a total conflict of interest, because what's good for the investment advisor is selling you a mutual fund that pays them a high fee. Well, that's the worst thing for you. So when you mix the product with the service, you, you, you get uh, a conflict of interest. So that doesn't work. Uh, what's most popular now, is, as you mentioned, is a percentage of assets. So you pay, for example, a visible fee of 1% of the average value of your portfolio. Um, then, but the third option is to find an independent fee-only financial planner, pay them a set fee to analyze your investment portfolio and your whole financial situation, uh, pay that visible fee, have them recommend a change to your investments to possibly lower fee exchange-traded funds, et cetera, et cetera, and then just go back maybe once a year, maybe twice a year for an hour or two uh, to have them review what's been happening lately. So uh, while it sounds scary to, to pay a visible fee, uh, these people who don't also sell investments are much more likely to give you an independent point of view that's worth the money. Uh, the problem with the annual fee is you're paying you know, month after month after month, even if you don't talk to the investment advisor and there's no, there's no activity on your account, um, that, again, doesn't make much sense to the investor, but it's great for the investment advisor. There's a group in America called NAPFA, the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors, which are what you've been talking about, kind of fee-only, no commissions, no conflicts of interest. That's at NAPFA.org, I think, is their website to find out more about that. Perfect, uh, yeah. Then you have a chapter uh, which you call Forget RSPs or in the U.S. IRAs until your debt is paid off, what you call the opportunity zone. Right. So th that's a very common thing people do is I want to get money into my IRA or even at work a 401k if I'm being matched, even if I'm still in debt. Why do you think that that's not a good way to go? Uh, well, personally, I think getting to debt freedom is, is uh, a great objective. Uh, it's difficult to do. Uh, but it forces you to be fiscally prudent. In other words, if you're going to say, okay, I'm not going to start to save for retirement until I pay off debt, that's going to be difficult to do, but it's going to force you to cut your spending so that you can actually pay off that debt. 
if you don't worry about debt, you're just going to carry debt into retirement and you're throwing money into your IRA, uh, not really knowing how well it's doing, it doesn't force you to be fiscally responsible. And if people aren't forced to be fiscally responsible, uh, often they don't end up becoming fiscally responsible or changing their habits. So they end up going into retirement with, yes, more savings than you would be uh, than you, that you uh, than you would have if you did what I was saying, uh, but you still have a massive amount or possibly a large amount of debt going into retirement. And again, you know, when your income goes down, you're on a fixed income. That's a lot uh, tougher to pay the bills, especially with the risk of rising interest rates and and things like that. So, does it uh, make, a, advantage- make a difference as to what kind of debt you have? I mean, if you have a HELOC, which yeah. is at a three or four percent rate. That's a different kind of debt than credit cards at 20 or 25%. If you're investing in a 401k at work and you're getting a match of 50% of the dollar, something like that, yes. would you still advocate not doing the 401k and doing all of it towards the debt, or would you have some balance between the two? No, I, I would say that if you've got a, a 401k matching plan, that sort of overrides this recommendation. I mean, it's hard to give up free money from, from your employer. Uh, I'm self-employed. If I worked somewhere that was matching my, in, in my case, RSP contributions, I probably would be still making RSP contributions. I, I've heard a different, of a different uh, opinion. I had somebody in one of, the, one of the courses I was giving saying that she was in an RSP matching plan at work, but because the uh, returns are so poor and the fees were so high, it wasn't wor- she just opted out of it, even though she was being, being given half her uh, contribution. Wow. So it, you have to kind of make the calculations to what kind of return. If you're getting matched, that makes a difference. And if the interest rate on the debt is lower, it makes more sense to invest. If the interest rate on the debt is higher, like a credit card, then yeah. it probably does not make as much sense to do an IRA or 401k. Is that what you're saying? I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, that's fine. It's a, it's a relative problem. Yeah. All right. In about a minute or so we have left, why don't you just kind of summarize for the audience uh, your, your strategy here? Uh, where you could actually retire well without the stock market, mutual funds, or investment advisor, which sounds like uh, very unusual advice. Too good to be true. Well, my thinking is, look, uh, if you are going to trust the stock market to fund your retirement, you you are taking a huge risk. Uh, It may work out, but because of the timing, it might not work out. Stock market returns have been very good over the long term, like, for instance, a 50-year average. But over a shorter period of time, like a decade or so, which is probably the most important part of uh, you saving for retirement, the decade before you are going to retire, the stock market might not cooperate with you. And that might ruin any chance of a reasonable uh, retirement. So my thinking is, look, forget it. Go to safe fixed income. You're only going to make this small amount, 2%, and get your act together. Track your spending. Spend less than you make. Save more so that you not you don't have to have an amazing investment return, which is unlikely for many people. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been David Traher. He's a chartered professional accountant, a speaker, and author. His latest book is called Enough Bull, How to Retire Well Without the Stock Market, Mutual Funds, or an Investment Advisor. His website is traher.com. Thanks so much for being a guest on The Money Answer Show, David. Thanks for having me, Jordan. Thanks again, and we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.